Hello, Nancy. Hi, Shane. It's a so, gray day here in Washington. It is. It is a our, our level of. You're not excited I'm about so this, dude. I'm very excited. Be excited. All right. Yeah. So my question for you today: If you could take one thing with you into the afterlife, let's say, be buried with something. I don't know if you want to talk about Nancy's shaking her head. She she does not like this line of questioning. I want to be cremated. What is, okay. What's one thing that we drop into your urn? Maybe not take it into the afterlife, but like, what's what's a thing that you'd like to take with you to the grave? That's a good question. My it diary. You're, you have a diary? I have a journal. Oh, I want to read. I'm just like, so fascinated. I do it so like, infrequently what? that it goes back so many years that it's ridiculous. Oh, see, that's even better. Yeah. Is it like is it like a big notebook? Is it like it's a just like a little like, like a little a, notebook? Yeah, yeah. And you've yeah, held yeah, on to yeah, it yeah. for all these years. Yeah. How so far it's back are we talking? No, I mean like since I graduated from college, which is like 20 years ago. So oh, it's kind of funny. That's yeah. Amazing. So that oh. would be good because I don't want anyone to read it. So I'd be better with it. <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So there is a reason why I was asking Nancy about things to take with you. Um, but to to explain this in a way that's probably much more eloquently than I can do it, we're going to bring in Lauren LaPuma, who actually did the interview. So hello, Lauren. Hi, Shane. Okay. So can you explain what we're talking about today? Yeah. So um, a couple of months ago, I interviewed Carter Clinton, who's a researcher at Howard University here in D.C., and Carter was telling me this fascinating story um, about a cemetery that was discovered back in 1991. And um, along with some remains and some artifacts that were buried with the individuals inside. So my name is Carter Clinton. I am a PhD candidate at Howard University and the assistant curator of the W. Montague Cobb Research Laboratory. So the Cobb Lab was started um, almost 100 years ago by William Montague Cobb. He was a pioneering anthropologist in the 20th century here in D.C., and he started a collection of skeletal remains of African-Americans from individuals who lived in the D.C. area and who had donated their bodies to science for one reason or another. And his goal was really to study race. He wanted to show the impact of race on human health. This was like a big issue in the 20th century. And he also wanted to provide scientific evidence that African-Americans were not physically or mentally inferior, as some people had thought around that time. Mm -hmm. So the Cobb Lab over the years has grown and now has several different collections of human remains and burial artifacts from African-Americans who lived over the past 400 years from various places. And one of the collections that we're going to talk about today that Carter studies is a collection of soil samples from the New York African Burial Ground. And this was a cemetery for enslaved Africans and then African-Americans that lived during the colonial period in New York during the 17th and 18th centuries. And what Carter has been doing has, is analyzing those soil samples to see if he can reconstruct the lives of these individuals and how they lived and how they died. And interestingly, the burial ground was discovered in 1991 during construction of a federal building in Lower Manhattan. So in 1991, the government went to build this federal building in Lower Manhattan um, literally at the corner of Broadway and Chambers. Broadway being, you know, one of the most famous streets in the country, or maybe the world. And all of these bones just started to come out. 
So the thing is, this building was much taller than all the other buildings in the area. So it was intended to be around 30 stories tall. So they had to dig 30 feet deep. And so at this depth, that's when skeletal remains, bones, um, artifacts started to be unearthed. And so now is the question of what have we just discovered and what do we do next? So, of course, they still want to build the federal building at this point. <laughs> um, it's a multi-million dollar project. But the local community actually steps in and says, hey, we have to figure this out. If this is the remains of, you know, some living descendants, then they're owed the opportunity to have some voice in what happens with these remains. And that was mainly the... Um, assumed descendant or African-American community in New York at the time. It also helped that New York had an African-American mayor, David Dinkins, at the time, who was very instrumental in getting this work done. So they discovered the, the remains. They halted the excavation. In 2006, they reburied the remains. Mm -hmm. So at that location now stands the federal building that they first intended to build, a memorial to the New York African burial ground population, and a visitor center where people can come and learn more about the population. At what point during the excavation process when they discovered all the bones and artifacts, did they realize what it was, that this was an African burial ground? Right. So they went back to historical maps. And the assumption was that either it was sterile land that they were trying to erect this federal building on, or they were not building deep enough to disturb the remains. But the maps clearly show that in this area was the Negro's burial ground. So that's how it was labeled on maps. Mm. And I can't remember the name of the surveyors. Obviously, before a construction project, you have surveyors who kind of look at the soil profile and the locations to make sure everything is okay. And they're the ones who actually pointed it out that that was the New York African burial ground. We don't know exactly the exact year or the origin. It's assumed that it's around the 1640s. Mm -hmm. So in the New Amsterdam colony, there were 11 slaves who were enslaved to the Dutch West India Company. They actually petitioned for their freedom and were granted a half freedom. So basically they were free, but their offspring were not free. And if the company needed them at any point, it would be mandatory for them to fulfill whatever work the company needed. But with their half freedom, they were actually allotted a plot of land just outside of the colony. So this is just north of where the new Amsterdam colony existed in the 1600s. And then they had to pay taxes every year for that land to appropriate the, or to live on that land. And then the hypothesis is, if we're living outside of the colony, we need a place nearby to bury our dead. We're not going to, you know, carry our loved ones somewhere, you know, that's very difficult to get without transportation. Mm -hmm. 
And so that this burial ground is hypothesized that it's adjacent to the Negro frontier. So that's the community that was developed by these free Africans. We hypothesize that they started to use this land as a burial site because nobody else wanted it, right? It was undesirable land. It was marshy. Nobody wanted to build on it. It wouldn't be disturbed. They didn't have anything to worry about. And so how many individuals' remains were in the burial ground or how many were excavated? And then do they know how many are there total? So there's an estimated 15,000 individuals there. Wow. It spans about 6.6 acres on the island of Manhattan today. And at excavation, there were 404 individuals, I believe, that were brought to Howard University for analyses. And so then when the remains were brought to Howard, so what did they first discover about the individuals? Well, they were really interested in confirming that these were Africans, African-descended people. And they were also interested in anthropometrics. So basically, whether it was a male, female, age, looking at juveniles, obviously at that time, there were a lot of infant and juvenile mortalities. And I believe maybe the oldest individual was around 60 years old which obviously is not very old today. So they didn't have a long lifespan. Right. And also they were very interested in their involvement in New York City's history. So we know that, you know, New York was built by enslaved Africans, but we don't really have that narrative in America's history. We don't know very much about their role in building, you know, even Wall Street, the location of our nation's, you know, or the global economy, right? So they wanted to kind of elucidate all of these stories and this existence about this population. Do you know a little bit about some of the analysis, the skeletal analysis that was done on the samples when they were first excavated or... So I think these were things that we already knew. Um, so even seeing lesions on the bone to where, you know, the muscle was almost being torn from the bone because of the strenuous labor or lifting very heavy things. There was damage at the base of the skull for some individuals, and that's from carrying very heavy items wow. on the head. They also attempted to look at pathologies on the bone. Mm -hmm. So... Certain diseases, when they're they when they go untreated, you're able to see lesions on the bone, like tuberculosis or syphilis. So they did the, explore the remains for those pathologies. Mm -hmm. You were telling us about one particular individual that stood out to you last time we talked. Yeah, so that's burial twenty-five, and so this individual was a female. She was estimated to be between 25 and I believe either 35 and 40 years old. And she had a musket ball in her, like in her rib cage, meaning that, you know, she died with this bullet in her at the time of death. And she had like a fractured skull from blunt force trauma. She had a broken arm, a fractured arm. 
which shows that there was some sort of struggle. There was some sort of either some situation where she she fought back. She fought back. She didn't just succumb to her situation or this person who was attacking her. Right. And so in that, I see strength. And that was, you know, monumental for me because this is an example of only one individual, but I can only guess, you know, the percentage of this population who felt that. With her injuries, with the blunt force trauma and the fractured arm and the musket ball, specifically around the fractured arm, there was bone regeneration, which means that she suffered these injuries, but she also lived for days afterwards. So the bone was healing. Right. Oh, wow. So you can tell that she didn't die immediately. She suffered. Wow. Right. So she must have been in some agony for days before she passed away. Wow. So that just speaks to the strength, you know, of this individual in the 17th century and her will to survive. I started working with the remains in 2015. So unfortunately, they, well, not unfortunately, for the remains. They were ceremoniously reburied. But unfortunately for me as a researcher, they were reburied. So I couldn't do any analyses on the the bones. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did have the soil that was collected at the same time that the bones were collected. And being from New York and having visited when I was in elementary school, I was very, very interested in this project, in this population, in this location. I wanted to be involved with every part of this project that I could be. So since Carter didn't have access to the remains because he just started his PhD, I mean, not too many years ago, they were already reburied, right? So Mm -hmm. he had to figure out how, what to do. Right. So he really wanted to work on these samples, but the skeletal remains were already reburied. But luckily they did still have soil samples. And so what Carter has been doing is taking the soil, which is basically decomposed human flesh. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. For over 400 years, this is what it has become. And he's trying to see if from those samples, if they can tell us anything about these individuals more than the skeletal remains did. So can they find out about anything about how they lived, what they ate, how they died, and maybe what their lives might have been like? My dissertation is really a three-part project. The first is a soil chemistry analysis where we look at all trace metals in the soil. And so from that, we're actually, I guess, making deductions about diets, lifestyles of these individuals, and even the soil profile of lower Manhattan, where the samples were collected from. The second part is a bacterial DNA analysis of the burial ground soil. So we wanted to look at all human-associated bacteria. Basically, just to see what's there and if we could see evidence of human existence from 400 years ago. And then the last component of the project is the geospatial analysis. So basically, we take all the data from the first sub-project, the trace metals, all the data from the bacterial DNA analysis, 
and kind of map them into this 3D digital rendition of what the burial ground looked like, or at least the excavated portion of the burial ground. Mm -hmm. Because really, it's only a fraction of what's what existed at one point. And I also have to clarify this. When I present, it's not plot soil, right? It's not from the burial plot. It's soil compacted within the remains of the individuals. So even at the time of excavation, when they were collected, they were labeled with the body region that they were collected from. So for example, we could have burial 300 and we could have three samples for that individual. So burial 300 cranial soil, burial 300 pelvic soil, and then burial 300 tibial soil. It was actually compacted inside of the bones and it had to be removed from the skeleton. Tell us a little bit about the trace metal analysis, Mm -hmm. what that tells you about these individuals. With the trace metal analysis, we were able to analyze up to about 19 elements per sample. But with our samples, we were able to confidently report on five. Those five were arsenic, zinc, copper, calcium, and strontium. So we saw an extremely high or sevenfold increase of strontium in our burial ground samples. And so when we kind of looked at the scientific literature, when you look at ratios or calcium-strontium ratios, it indicates a vegetative diet. And so we know this is, you know, aligned with the historical narrative. These were enslaved Africans. They weren't eating, you know, protein-rich or very robust diets. And so they were eating root crops or leafy vegetable diets. And then also we know that they had to cultivate crops in order to pay the New Amsterdam colony. And so we know for sure that they were growing root crops and leafy crops. Wow. So this is, you know, the assumption that that's obviously what they were consuming. With the bacterial analysis, we were able to 100% see human evidence, mainly what we think is gut microbiota from each of these individuals. And interestingly enough, the certain disease pathogen, which only show up in specific burials. Like what? So... Some individuals have strains of pneumonia. And so we think, obviously, that was their cause of death. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're seeing evidence of possibly Legionnaire's disease, possibly cholera. And I say possibly because we need additional analyses just to confirm. We, Because of the age of the samples, we are only able to distinguish down to the uh, genus level. Mm -hmm. And so we just need additional analyses to kind of go back and look at specific strains of what we think we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But definitely salmonella, right, which kind of gives us some insight into their living conditions, like spoiled foods or not exactly, or fresh foods. Foodborne illness. Yeah. Evidence of dysentery, which was prevalent on slave ships, obviously, because, you know, this population was so tightly packed together or anybody on these slave ships were just so tightly packed together that it just spread throughout the ship and then they were obviously brought with them to the americas so many different disease pathogen that we think are the causes of death for these individuals 
also I think that's one of the very interesting parts of the project that these bacterial pathogens still exist after 400 years. So we can see evidence of like pneumonia, possibly pneumonia or Legionnaire's disease or cholera in these burial samples. Wow, because those those kinds of bacteria would not be present in soil normally, only if there had been they had been associated with people. Right. So not only are we seeing evidence of human existence in 400-year-old soil, we're seeing the microbiomes of these individuals, we're seeing decomposition evidence in these samples, we're seeing disease pathogen that still exists in these samples, and then we very well may be able to identify these individuals' ancestry by their microbiomes. Oh, wow. So not to a, an individual level, but kind of to a, this reflects what modern African-descended population microbiome looks like today. The GIS analysis, I think, is the most important. Um, it's where it's the comprehensive just collection of all of this data. One, to make everything available for the public, because I feel like it should be out there for people to know. And also, I would like for it to be incorporated into the, the monument. So right now, they have just the 2D map of the burials, whether they were male or female. But if you would be able to have a digital map hanging up, and you can kind of, it's interactive, and you can touch it, and you can be like, oh, this is burial, you know, 10, and oh, they died from cholera, and oh, they had, you know, high levels of strontium, so we know they had a high vegetative diet or something like that. Mm -hmm. This is my, that's the end goal, to look at all of these things, well, on that 2D map, but also in a 3D rendition to see where depth also plays a role. Because we have time periods assigned for these individuals, but nobody really knows for sure because they were unmarked graves. Mm. So the time periods were assigned basically based on the artifacts that they were found with or the shape of the coffins. And so how do the artifacts in the coffin shape tell you a little bit about the time? So originally coffins were just four-sided boxes or just rectangles. And then over time, they became octagonal. So kind of that Dracula coffin shape. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the best way I can <laughs> convey that. Um, so we know that those were later coffins. And then the artifacts reflect the pottery existence of the time and then the rule of the time. So New Amsterdam actually changed to New York from Dutch to British rule. So there's some evidence of when that change occurred, when these artifacts started to show up with British rule, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. What do you think all this means, all the things that you found? It, me it means a lot on many different levels. It's just, I think this is such a huge part of not just African-American history, but American history. For example, even when I go to conferences and I'm presenting the science, people take me all the way back to the beginning and they're like, wait, there was slavery in New York? And it's like, yes, there was slavery in New York. And it's actually the place of the largest burial site in the country, mainly because, you know, in the South, there were plantations and there wasn't one place where all, you know, enslaved Africans were buried. So this was kind of 
a fortuitous probably fortuitous is not the the word that I want to use it's, it was fortuitous for the construction to happen but it was convenient for these Africans to use one location to bury their loved ones to be able to to be able to do that it's just that that was fortunate for us as researchers to learn something about an entire population And so this project gives you something to connect to, right? Looking at strictly the numbers, if, you know, looking at the number of Africans who were trafficked to America and thinking that 15,000 are buried in this one location, then, you know, African-Americans in the Northeast region may very well have an ancestor that came from the New York African burial ground. And so what does it mean for you personally to be involved in this project and to have done this work? It's a loaded question. <laughs> it's, it's very important for me on so many levels. As a researcher, as a native of New York, I feel as though I have this duty, right? I had this opportunity. I had to take that opportunity because it's important for these stories to be told by the right voices. And I, I just feel invested. I feel personally invested in this project. I don't know, it gives me a sense of completion, almost. Even as a researcher, just to be able to do this work, have some autonomy, and then have the voice to convey this narrative to the, to the public. This was, you know, one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done. And actually, Carter was telling me he thinks he may even have some ancestors buried uh, in the burial ground. Really? Yeah. He may be one of their descendants. Oh, man. I so uh, for so many reasons, I can't even imagine like what that must must be like. That's well. And, and because he's here and he's local, I'm excited. We'll definitely have to uh, keep in touch yeah. with him to figure out what he finds and what's going on later. Yeah, definitely. All right, folks, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Lauren for bringing us this story and to Carter for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by Lauren and mixed by Colin Warren. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Of course, listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and at thirdpodfromthesun.com. All right, thanks all, and we'll see you next time.